Elizabeth Williamson, feature writer at the New York Times and author of the book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. So Elizabeth, your book is about so much of what surrounds us today, violence, disinformation, conspiracies, confusion. And we're recording just a few weeks after a white supremacist shooting in Buffalo and a school shooting in Uvalde. We already see the conspiracy machine online and elsewhere churning out lies, denials, falsehoods about what happened in those incidents. What's your reaction when you see how some of the key themes in your book are playing out over and over and over again? It's really disheartening, to say the least. After Uvalde, within hours, people online denying the shooting. That doesn't even take into account Buffalo, where great replacement theory, which is something ascribed to by so many of these conspiracy theorists, you saw the murderous results of someone's belief in that falsehood and that unbelievable anti-Semitic lie. When you see these lies, not only in many ways motivate some of these attacks, but I think to a key element of what you outline in your book, it doubles down on the tragedy as these conspiracies infect our understanding at a time where we're most vulnerable to trying to figure out what's going on. What was the impetus for you to take on a topic that is so complex and yet so critically everywhere we turn? So Sandy Hook was really the first mass shooting to generate these viral claims that it didn't happen and that it was a false flag, a government operation that was a pretext for confiscating Americans' firearms. And as I started to trace that, initially, I had in mind a little bit more of a narrowly focused book, that it would be about that as a First Amendment test of the ability to, you know, as Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists claim, Mm -hmm. you know, that the First Amendment protects their right to broadcast these kinds of falsehoods that result in a lot of harm to vulnerable people. But I really did over time come to realize, and this was with the help of Lenny Posner, whose son Noah Posner was the youngest Sandy Hook victim. He had a technology background and he helped to understand the broader context here. And that was that Sandy Hook really was a foundational story of how these false narratives and misinformation have gained traction in society. You saw it actually in real time as I was working on the book over the past three, four years. You really saw this sort of gain speed and steam and these theories being ascribed to by more and more people. And what's most important here and most worrisome is an increasing willingness for people, whether you're talking about the Buffalo shooting or you're talking about Great Replacement Theory or QAnon or the 2020 election lie and the attack on the Capitol, you're seeing people who are increasingly willing to defend these falsehoods and these destructive narratives with confrontation and with violence. Why do you think that this is happening? 
especially in the wake of a tragedy, the conspiracies and the disinformation machine seems to be an override. Is it because people just don't know how to deal with something so terrible as a school shooting or an insurrection? Or is this just the standard communication that we are dealing with? What are the reasons why you're seeing conspiracies be some of the first results of tragedies? So I think there are a couple reasons. One, we have to lay some of this and actually a large portion of the blame on the social media platforms that have connected the entire world. And that's all, you know, wonderful. It had a worthy goal. But what's happened is it has allowed people who believe in these false narratives and theories to gather and to spread these theories within seconds around the world. It's connected them with a peer group that emboldens them, that gives them a lot of enhanced status, being part of a group that ascribes to these theories. And there's very little being done to stop the spread of this, certainly not enough. More now, you know, that people are talking about it and we've seen the destructive results, but certainly still not enough. And then the second thing is, I think there's been a real erosion of trust in our institutions in this country, whether you're talking about the federal government, which is always kind of the villain in a lot of these conspiracy theories, and in the mainstream media, where we're more and more a country where you subscribe or you watch or listen to the outlet that corresponds with your beliefs. So if you are conspiratorially minded, you can certainly find outlets that cater to those misconceptions and delusions. If you're more fact-based, then you're going to go to more traditional mainstream media outlets. But there's a fracturing there and a deep distrust. And I was thinking about this just last night when Fox News was refusing to cover the live hearings Mm. about January 6th. They are catering to the 40% of Americans who choose to believe that January 6th was not a violent insurrection and an attack on our democratic institutions. And it was. I was struck by the beginning of the January 6th committee hearing that in some ways, the ideal goal would be some sort of shared understanding of what occurred that day. I think this is why they're showing all these videos, having witnesses talk about what occurred. But to your point, there are some who are not going to get their news, are not going to watch. And is a shared understanding of what happens during an insurrection or another tragedy even possible anymore when there are so many of these outlets to turn to? And I guess the other question is, why is it important that we do have a shared understanding of what actually happens in this country? One of the lawyers who is fighting Alex Jones in court on behalf of Sandy Hook families put it best. He said, if there are no arbiters of truth in this country, then anybody can be an arbiter of truth. And I think that's what you're seeing an erosion of the traditional arbiters of truth, the gatekeepers, you know, who in the media would say, well, whether it's the local newspaper when some of these local moral panics spring up, or it's the big three broadcast outlets, they were able to keep falsehoods and delusions and conspiracy theories off the air. But now because we have such an atomization of the media, people can just sort of go to the place where they'll put that on the air. So I think the arbiters of truth in our country are still there, but they are increasingly disbelieved and people are making other choices than to listen to them. And so consequently, your arbiter of truth is the person who echoes your beliefs rather than someone who is legitimately interested in getting to the bottom of a situation and presenting facts. 
every couple of years, it seems like there is the new big lie. We put yeah. big lie on the latest absurd narrative, et cetera. But I think what you show in your book is how small lies, individual conspiracies, other people who are sort of following that have this cumulative effect, if you will. So can you talk a little bit about the different people who you outline that sort of bought into this conspiracy because of either listening to Alex Jones or elsewhere and the impact it started having on the real victims in the Sandy Hook tragedy? Sure. So if you visualize a sort of inverted pyramid where you have someone like Alex Jones, who reaches millions of people, tens of millions of people on his daily broadcast, speaks to them for four hours a day, has revenues in excess of $50 million a year selling products attached to his broadcast. That's the sort of super spreader of these falsehoods. But then you sort of funnel that down to these individuals. They are his content providers. So you have people who have their own little podcast or their own conspiracy website. And, you know, Alex Jones will hire that person or ask them to go to, in the case of my book, to Newtown, to ask for public records, to interview people on the street, to accost victims' families and their neighbors. And then they've got an InfoWars camera crew with them. And so then that material is then broadcast on InfoWars to that giant group of listeners. Then you have individual people who are raising money online to fund their quest for, quote, truth in the case of a mass shooting or a QAnon investigation or Pizzagate or what have you. And we saw a lot of this around the 2020 election theories and the run-up to the Capitol insurrection, because you had these groups using different outlets online to raise money, to coordinate, to arrange where to meet, what to bring, go incognito, et cetera, et cetera. So you just have these sort of individuals who are all out there and they coalesce usually online and then they cross from the virtual to the real world and take action. I was struck by an example that you gave in your book where one of the conspiracy theorists basically took a glitch in a video of one of the parents who was talking about what had occurred and turned that into some insane, absurd conspiracy can you talk about that specific example of how conspiracy theorists take every little minute detail and spin it in order to fit into their worldview? Because I think it shows this is not about logic. This is about theater. Yeah. And it's about gut impression based on whatever people's individual beliefs or experiences are. There's one woman in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Kelly Watt, who had a house cleaning business. And so her little take on this was who cleaned up the school after the shooting? Can I get records? If there are no records of this, then it didn't happen. So that would be one thing. You know, someone's individual take their gut feeling based on what they do in their workaday life. The video glitch was an InfoWars video of Anderson Cooper interviewing Veronique De La Rosa, who's the mother of Noah Posner, as we said, the youngest Sandy Hook victim in downtown Newtown. And he was speaking with her. You could see the background. You knew where she was. At one point, another person walked up behind her. There was no doubt where she was, what she was saying. And she was reminiscing about Noah, just what kind of child he was, her memories of him. Very moving interview. Alex Jones's crew lifted a recording of that interview off of YouTube. And in so doing, they created what's called a compression error, which is just a little glitch in the video. 
And at one point, Anderson Cooper's nose looks like it disappeared. If you or I saw it, we'd just say, that's just a recording error, the way things break up in our transfer of video. They created that error, the InfoWars staff. And then Alex Jones called that out on air as, quote unquote, proof that this interview was staged before a green screen that, you know, Noah's mom was not in Newtown at all, and that CNN had set this up in a studio of some kind. So she was standing before the image of downtown Newtown, like a weatherman would stand before a green screen map of the United States. How does one effectively try to push back on that? It almost sounds so absurd that if anybody believes that, then they're hopeless. But the reality is there are millions and millions of people who will believe that because of the way it's presented, not only by, say, Alex Jones, because they're reading it on their social media platform of choice. But in reading this book, you've also talked to people who are addressing this. What's sort of the best way to combat something that may seem so ridiculous to many people, but that we also know people are believing? Right. And acting on, as we've seen, right. heartbreakingly. So I think it has to be what J.M. Berger, who studies extremism, told me for the book. It has to be almost a cocktail of measures that one takes. As I document in the book, debunking by itself doesn't really work. And, you know, I do that with the video example by talking to a video forensics expert who looked at that and found a perfect recording of that Anderson Cooper interview with Veronique online with no glitch and said, I don't really even need to use any sophisticated techniques to determine that this is just created by that staff and then used as this, you know, falsehood. But the thing is, people who believe in these theories and who spread them and who gather in groups to embroider them and continually expand upon them are not interested in truth. They get too much out of being part of the group that spreads these. You know, they create a new identity for themselves. In my book, I talk about a guy who is a house mover in Florida who has, by denying every single high-profile mass shooting, reinvented himself as a citizen journalist. He founded an organization called Independent Media Solidarity. So all of a sudden, he's a personage among this group of conspiracy theorists that he leads. This kind of social status that people derive from it and the psychic income they get really prevents them from just saying, oh, you're right, actually, this is false. You're right. You have the facts here, and I'm going to abandon this. You are actually a threat to them when you come to them with facts. It's so interesting because I feel like superior knowledge, right, effort to peel back the curtain and find the truth is what exactly the conspiracy theorists are saying that they're doing. So that right. appealing to that assumes that there are the real facts out there as well. I want to sort of switch gears and ask if there was any concern as you were writing this book that your reporting in any way would give oxygen to some of these conspiracies just by the mere fact of having to write about them at all. And I ask only because at ADL, we sort of ask ourselves this all the time. We are exposing extremists, right? We are writing about them in order to educate the public. But we need to ask ourselves sometimes if providing this information is actually in some ways going to be appreciated by the extremists themselves. I will just note, I think sunlight is the best disinfectant, but the way that you approached writing about this, did that sort of come into mind? How to be careful about the way you write about it so as not to unintentionally expose people to these conspiracies? 
you know, there's a great example in the book of that sort of effect. And that was when during the 2016 presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton gave a speech, which people called her alt-right speech, Mm. in which she called out some of these theories that Donald Trump was advancing on the campaign trail. Among them, quasi-replacement theory about immigrants, and his alliance with Alex Jones, which InfoWars delivered Donald Trump a constituency that he needed to win these conspiratorially minded people. But in the aftermath of her speech, which you know people said, well, should she do this? Should she not? Should she call out Alex Jones by name? And she did. And she even mentioned that he had spread the Sandy Hook hoax theory. Afterward, these conspiracy theorists gathered online and those who were mentioned were delighted. Alex Jones was absolutely delighted for the exposure. There were others who were grousing that they weren't mentioned themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in the broader context, and you have to remember this was 2016 when this was just beginning to gain steam and we were just beginning to understand how much this was spreading and how what sounded to us like outlandish theories like Pizzagate, that Democrats were trafficking children from the basement of a restaurant not far from where I live in Washington, D.C., and the QAnon, which was the descendant of Pizzagate. They sound so crazy to us. And I think there was a tendency to dismiss them, just like people dismiss extremism in the West, in the American West, until, oh, there's the Bundys taking over a preserve again. But actually, this is a much more insidious, broader-based thing. And I felt like these people are already so much a part of our landscape that it really helps to illuminate those of us who would never believe this in the first place and understand that this is dangerous or don't understand that it's dangerous because they don't understand how widespread it is. So I tried to, you know, very deliberately speak about these theories and make that through line that this actually happened around Sandy Hook and then it happens around other mass shootings and here's Pizzagate and here's QAnon and then here we are at the Capitol on January 6th. Just so that people understand that what sounds like a nutty thing out in Idaho to you is actually part of a much broader phenomenon and a broad network of people who actually believe these things. And we have all been delivered the abject lesson now that they will act on them. So I just felt like the urgency of that message, as you do at ADL, outweighed some individual saying, oh, Yahoo, you know, she mentioned my name in the book and I can find it in the index. Yeah, you know, with the Buffalo shooting in particular, here's somebody who not only carried out this awful attack and talked about great replacement, but you literally can draw a through line between him and other attacks. You know, we did a study of his manifesto, if that's even the right word, 63% of the Christchurch manifesto was literally copied and pasted in there. He mentioned the various killers from previous attacks literally put them on his weapon as he was live streaming the attack the way the Christchurch shooter did. And in all those cases, they are leaving a blueprint for the next person. And it's not just the conspiracies, great replacement or others that are being left out there. That's the ideological justification. It's the combination of that with the practical tools that they need to carry out these attacks. Yes. I mean, this is what is, I think, so frustrating and challenging for people who are in this space is like, how is this being allowed? It is all about attention getting on the part of these perpetrators and getting a message out. And it's about recruitment too. 
because when you are live streaming a mass murder like that, you have one message. I mean, that is a blueprint, as you say, for others, and it's a call to action. And so every minute that that is allowed to remain online is another group of people who are influenced by it. And yeah. that is something that we definitely can tackle. And I suppose if we have any good news here, it is the fact that there is an increasing recognition on the part of social media companies and policymakers that something really needs to be done about the way that this information is shared. Because if you have exponential distribution of material like that, you are going to have copycat events. Yeah. These are heavy topics for the subjects that obviously you are focusing on, but I'm sure it takes a toll on you as well. And as we are likely going to continue to see terrible things happen in this country, conspiracy theorists trying to exploit those times, you're going to be, I'm sure, talking and reporting on this even more. How do you deal with this topic? How do you find a way to, whether it's a healthy work-life balance or just an ability to keep focusing on really challenging topics that are critical without letting it destroy you? I should probably, Oren, ask you that question because I think you have more of an unrelieved diet of this in your important work. I mean, I do, as a reporter, have other things that I do go off and am assigned to work on. Yes, it's true that especially since Uvalde, I have been pretty singularly focused on this, but I always, while I appreciate when people ask me that, I always think about the families because imagine what they've gone through. They've just sustained the worst loss that a human can sustain, and yet they're suffering with the secondary trauma of a significant number of people who apply politics to their loss and say that they staged this in service to the federal government. So many of them have said to me, if only these people were right, you know, if only my child still was here. So that is, you know, something I think about a lot. And one of the things that I think would sustain all of us is the idea that despite everything that has happened, these families are hopeful. They believe in the system. They think the system will eventually, not swiftly, they've learned, but will eventually work in their favor. And so by that, I mean in all of our favor, that there will be solutions that will come forward that by speaking to me for the book and by speaking out to so many others in the 10 years since Sandy Hook happened, they feel like they are promoting change and that they're lending their power as grieving parents and siblings and spouses and children of the educators who died to sort of say to people, we want you to help us. We want you to work on this. This is what happened to us. Can we have a broader discussion? Those of them that favored new gun policy or new gun legislation in this country, and that's not all of them. It's a big group of people, and they have an array of views on gun policy in this country. There was no meaningful change in that realm, but they do feel like there can be some change in the disinformation sphere, particularly since we are now seeing more and more the results of this mass delusion that we're living with right now. And so the fact that they are so hopeful and that they still believe makes me think, well, how can I lose hope? You know, how could I be disheartened or how could I despair? Because they don't. They have moments, but they insist that something be done. And they're very strong in that. And as time goes on, they have more and more room for that kind of advocacy. And so I think we should all be heartened by that. 
finding comfort and strength in the courage of others who are truly facing an ongoing attack by conspiracy theorists after the tragedy that they had to endure really is hopeful. You know, it's dark hopeful, but it's hopeful. And I know that the folks I work with every day, reading those stories of that courage does help us recommit ourselves to this work. I will tell you, key lime pie for me is also like a huge thing, you know, like a full pie, not a slice, but that's probably <laughs> beside the point. But again, I think one of the reasons, again, this book is important is because it does show the incredible way that the families in Sandy Hook have taken this full on. And frankly, I'm reminded of another school shooting, which is in Parkland, and mm -hmm. seeing how those students have continued to take not only their tragedy, but the way that some of the same characters doubled down on them the way they did the families in Sandy Hook and continue to go on, that does give me hope. And it's those stories that hopefully at the end of the day will be told more and will be the lasting impression. Yeah. And if I could just add one thing, that doesn't mean that we should put a heavier burden on these survivors and family members mm. than they are already bearing. And you've seen some of them say that don't put all your policy expectations on us. Don't expect us to release crime scene photos of our murdered children in order to inspire change because that traumatizes us. I think what they're saying is we've got more room 10 years on, speaking of the Sandy Hook survivors, to advocate for change, but we really need the rest of you to join us and to take on the yeoman's share of that work. And I think that that's really, really important to emphasize because one thing I have noticed when people are reading the book and I've gotten marvelous, interesting insights from people who have read the book, but I do notice some people say, I just can't face this tragedy. And that's so interesting to me because some of the first conspiracy theorists, the people who really didn't want to believe that Sandy Hook happened were young parents, particularly moms who had children the same age. They just couldn't imagine that something like this would happen to so many children so young. So they were kind of there for anyone who could tell them that maybe we'd gotten the official story wrong. Sadly, we hadn't. And, you know, they quickly realized that and were even a little embarrassed that they had ever wanted to believe that. But I say that because these are terrible tragedies and they are hard to countenance. But if we don't override that impulse to look away, we can't be part of the work to make this change. And I noticed that some of the groups, you know, that are advocating for new gun legislation are even using that theme, you know, don't look away. I think that's really important because it's not only that this is so awful that you can't grapple with it. It's also that it's happening so often that chances are good there will be a community near you that's going to need you not to look away. So I just want to say that, that for the sake of these families, probably the best thing we can do is to shoulder some of this work and not look away. Thank you for making that point about not adding a burden on to the victims. And thank you, Elizabeth, for making the time to chat with me. This is one of those books that not only talks about a moment in time in Sandy Hook, but really is so evergreen. And unfortunately, and we've already seen this, I think the rinse and repeat pattern of yeah. tragedy, conspiracy theorists doubling down, creating even greater threats is not going to go away. So appreciate the perspective you've brought to this. And just thank you for what you do. 
the storytellers, those who take the time to interview and shed light on this are critical to the broader effort to combat extremism and hate. So really appreciate you making the time. Oren, thank you for inviting me and thank you for your work. It's so important. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit american.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.